the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM860, The Answer. And we are The Answer. I'm here 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time every Sunday morning. And you can get me worldwide on the web at drbillradiomd.com. Click Listen Live. And if you have a headset or speakers hooked up to your computer, you got me. And if you're listening in the area, we are Talk Radio. And even if you're outside the area, we have a toll-free number, 877-969-8600. That's 877-969-8600. We're an iHeart station, too, if you're an iHeart kind of person. So this is Memorial Day weekend. Bill and I were just talking about this, and we were wondering, where did this holiday come from? This goes back to the Civil War. Unbelievable. After the Civil War, um, future President Garfield and some other military guys that had fought in the Civil War decided to have an observation day the the last Monday in May, I believe. And so it was carried on, and it, it was finally made a federal holiday in 1971. That was while Richard Nixon was president. And it honors the men and women who died while serving in the U.S. military. It does not honor our living uh, military. It honors those who have died for us. And, of course, there are wreath ceremonies uh, and ceremonies at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And at 3 p.m. local time, uh, there is a moment of remembrance that we should all observe. So at 3 p.m. today, Eastern Standard Time, if you're in the Eastern Standard Time area, take a moment, stop, put down the spatula, turn off the grill for a a few seconds, put your head down and say whatever you're going to say and pray to whoever you're going to pray to and thank these guys and gals for what they've done for us. <clears throat> and as I've told my sisters who hate war, I said, yeah, war is a bad thing, but you know what? If it wasn't for war, we would not be here as a country. If we weren't willing to stand up and fight, we would not exist. Does that make war right or wrong? No, but it does certainly make us exist and I think that's a good thing. Initially, this was called Decoration Day, and it has morphed into what we now know as Memorial Day. Uh, th there were a lot of states that had these uh, ceremonies, but they weren't really federalized until 1971. So this is a time when a lot of people will go and place a flag or a wreath or some flowers 
on the grave of a family member who has died in combat. And uh, this is a good thing. Uh, we need to thank those who are willing to make that, that last full measure of a sacrifice, as, as President Lincoln said. Uh, they gave their life, and what more can you do? I mean, that is the ultimate sacrifice. So that's Memorial Day. Oh, my gosh, Memorial Day is here. Another spring is gone. Summer is marching at us, and it's getting hot here in the Tampa Bay area. And uh, what a situation we have, though, in the Middle East. I mean, this is uh, not only is this tension between Iran and the United States and Israel and Saudi Arabia, the three allies facing Iran, but it's also dragging Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon, and all the other little countries in that area into a major confrontation between the superpowers, the United States, and uh, indirectly the people that are helping the Iranians get their missile system up and running, including the Chinese who have sold them technology and goods, and the, of course the Pakistanis taught them how to build the bomb. We taught them how to refine the the nuclear fuel because in the 1950s, President Eisenhower had a plan called uh, Atoms for Peace, and uh, he was giving our then-allies technology to develop uh, reactors that would act as electricity generators. And so we initially taught the Iranians how to build uh, nuclear reactors. Now, nuclear reactors are not necessarily the basis of uh, nuclear bombs. You have to have a breeder reactor, which is a special kind of nuclear reactor where you can harvest out the, the byproducts of the, uh, the uranium breakdown, the daughter isotopes, plutonium being the major one that is used in the nuclear weaponry industry. So, this is, uh, this is something that the whole world has essentially been involved in, is teaching the Iranians how to uh, build nuclear weapons and also how to make missiles that, that will fire, uh, cruise missiles that will fire from Iran into Israel or Saudi Arabia, and anti-ship missiles and anti-surface-to-air uh, airplane uh, missiles, and so they've got a lot of technology, and they have used this recently, as you've heard in the press, to uh, shoot at and damage uh, a Saudi Arabian oil tanker and also Saudi Arabian oil lines. Now, they say they have not done it, uh, but these uh, militias and rebels, uh, like in Yemen and Oman, that are Shia-backed, and the Shia are the Iranian Muslims. The Iranian Muslims split from the Sunnis early on over whether or not they were the right line for um, Islam, and they followed the son-in-law of Muhammad, who was Ali, and they think that it's a little bit mixed up with, with the Christianity and, and the whole thing of uh someone coming back to save them, but they think that Ali will come back as a savior. And, of course, the Persians and the Arabs have been at it for millennia, long before there was Islam. And so 
this has given them an ideologic difference as well, because Shia and Sunnis have been at it as well for for uh, centuries. And so they have Shia-backed militia in, in the Middle East, in the Gaza Strip, in Lebanon, and in the Arabian Peninsula, fighting civil wars. And uh, they've been fighting with actually with uh, Iranian soldiers, teaching them how to do it, fighting the uh, ISIS. And they've blamed Israel. The Iranians are blaming Israel for, for ISIS, saying that they are backing ISIS. Now, the problem is, is that they have moved short-range ballistic missiles into the western deserts of Iraq. And if you know the geography there, Israel is right on the Mediterranean, and just north of that is Lebanon. So they're right on that eastern uh, cul-de-sac of the Mediterranean. And then as you go east, you go through Jordan, and then you're in Iraq. And if you go through Lebanon, then you're in Syria. And again, you go into Iraq. So the western part of Iraq is within firing range of Israel. And so the uh, Ayatollahs have sworn to uh, get rid of Israel and eliminate them from the map, and they don't have a whole lot of love for the Saudi family either. So they would go after Saudi Arabia if they could as well. I think they probably figure Israel's a smaller, easier target, but uh, I would not want to lock horns with the Israelis. They've got about 100 nuclear weapons and the ability to launch them. So I think that's a, a short-sighted view. And, of course, we don't want a, a nuclear war in the Middle East, so we are saying uh, you better get these things out of here or we're going to take you off the map. Now, I don't think Trump's going to do that. I think, he's, I think he is serious when he threatens trade wars and sanctions and embargoes and blockades, but... Uh, I think the guy really is a pacifist, and I don't think he wants to go to war. And I think he and Bolton are probably at opposite ends of the spectrum. Bolton would like to see military action and has been pushing hard for that, both in Venezuela and in Iran. But the president is not going to move on that. He does not like war. He's a pacifist, and from what I've seen. Uh, he did launch a strike against the Syrian Air Force, but those planes were on the ground, and uh, there there wasn't a lot of uh, collateral damage. As you recall, there were 20 or so Russian advisors and military people that were killed in that attack. That was early on in his presidency. But uh, I, I don't think that he's the kind of guy that, that, that likes to see anybody hurt, despite what the left is saying. I have not seen that. And, you know, I've been following this guy since he was in the primaries. And as I've told you guys before, I went through all of the primary candidates on both the Democratic and Republican side that were uh, uh, in contention. And the only one I came out with any respect for was Trump. The rest of them were all a bunch of scumbags, whether it's Bernie or, or, or the uh, Republicans. It didn't matter. They were all about the same, in my view, in terms of who they, they were actually uh, – working for and where they were getting their money for their campaign and whether or not they were really honest in what they were saying. And the only one that I really had any respect for after studying these folks, and I didn't even think Trump was serious about his candidacy, was Trump. So I think the guy is, if you if you go to his what he has on his websites in the <clears throat> campaign back in 2016, I mean, he, he sounds like a pacifist to me. I don't think this guy wants to fight. 
Um, now, will he? Well, yeah, I think he will if he has to, if he's attacked and we're attacked and we're backed into a corner, we're going to respond. So here's the problem. The Iranians now have the ability to sink ships. They have cruise missiles, and so they have that ability as well. They have intermediate-range ballistic missiles, short-range ballistic missiles. They're working on long-range ballistic missiles. They have nuclear material. Uh, they have the ability, they have anti-ship missiles, they have anti-aircraft missiles, so they're fairly well armed. And uh, they are a relatively big country in the Middle East. They have the largest population, over 60 million people. And you're looking at countries like Israel, which are just, what, three or four or five million people, and Saudi Arabia is not much bigger. Jordan's a small country, Lebanon, these are all small population countries. Iraq's got a bigger population, but uh, half of Iraq is Shiite, so the loyalties are split there as well, and the western provinces of Iraq <clears throat> have been co-opted during this recent war with ISIS, uh, since that region was uh, at one point conquered by ISIS, and part of that uh, part of the ISIS caliphate and uh, a lot of different interests moved into the area, including the Shiite militia, which are backed by the Iranians. And so there's a lot of semi-autonomous regions in, in, in western Iraq now. So th this is a problem. This is a problem. Even if the Iraqi government is opposed to it, uh, they have to move very cautiously because they're predominantly a Shiite government now. And they don't want to get into an argument with Iran either, uh, not only because they're uh, ph philosophically and religiously tied together, but also politically and, and economically, they're next-door neighbors. And they had a terrible war back in the 1970s and 80s, and um, a few million people were killed in that war. It was a, it was a real slugfest, and that's when Saddam Hussein first used uh, chemical weapons and was killing large numbers of Iranian kids who were conscripted to go fight against the Iraqis. So we've got a, a real uh, stew pot there, so to speak, and it is complex. And unfortunately, we've had to deploy our uh, Abraham Lincoln aircraft carrier into the region along with all of our support ships. And of course, you have to keep a big ship like that far enough out that it's uh, semi-protected from any missile attacks because the Iranians may just fire off a missile and, and try to provoke us. And remember back in the, uh, in the, I forget if it was the late 70s or early 80s, Bill, you might remember this, when we accidentally shot down an Iranian passenger jet that was approaching uh, one of our uh, missile destroyers and would not identify itself, probably not on the right radio frequency, and it was shot down, and I think there were a couple hundred people on that plane that were killed. And, um, of course, there was a, a lot of angst over that, and we felt bad about that, but we also had to remind the Iranians that uh, they had posed a threat to us and had been threatening us, and that it, they had fired on us before, and that we weren't going to take that. So... Now, under Barack Obama, that whole thing changed. And remember, Bill, when uh, they captured one of our, our small boats and took our, our sailors prisoner, and Obama told them just to apologize and, and be good boys and not give them a hard time. 
and that created a lot of outrage in the United States, especially among the military and those who had fought in the Middle East. Uh, and understandably, I mean, you know, you're going to back down or you're going to go get your people back. Um, seems like the Democrats haven't been very good at getting their people back. Carter couldn't do it in Iran. Obama refused to do it. Uh, Clinton actually did have the no-fly zone in southern Iraq, but that was against the Iraqis, and he really didn't do a whole lot against the Iranians, as I recall. I may be wrong. Uh, so we have to, and by the way, Reagan did something. He pretty much took out the, the uh, surface fleet of the Iranians in the late 80s uh, when they were threatening us. So We've got a history of the Democrats not wanting to engage and the Republicans willing to engage reluctantly. But now we have a president who is a semi-pacifist who doesn't want to engage and is doing his best to, to threaten but not actually get us involved in any kind of a, a, a slugfest. So what do we do? Well, we have a duty to help our allies in the Middle East. We have a duty to stand by Israel, and even though the Sauds are problematic at times with their uh, fundamentalistic Islamic uh, philosophy and theology, we have to be willing to allow that culture to evolve, and we also have to be ready to push for a reformation, so to speak, in Islam much as Judaism and Christianity underwent reformations uh, at the beginning of the Renaissance and of the Middle Ages, uh, when the fundamental tenets of the religions were, were reestablished and uh, there was a, a willingness for more tolerance and an acceptance of, although it wasn't perfect, obviously there were a lot of religious wars in, in Europe that went on after the Renaissance, but still there was a willingness to try to uh, accept and be more open and get rid of some of the institutions that were causing problems like selling of indulgences, which got a lot of the Protestant sects upset. Now, if you need a couple, I got some for sale. So, uh, By the way, I'm working on my toenail uh, gel formula, which we have perfected, and we're going to start packaging that and selling that and I'll let you know more about that um, on air and on the website once we get that up and going. We'll start off in the Tampa Bay area and see how it works. I've been using it now for several months, and it's eliminating the fungus in my toenails, which is, is really exciting. I've given it out to several of my patients. Everybody's happy with it, and a few people have even used it on corns and calluses on their feet, and it's getting rid of that. Unbelievable. I'm not pushing it for that, but uh, I'll just share that with you. So... Let us not back down from the Iranians and let us make sure that we are in a position to protect those who are our allies in the region. And the distance from the uh, province in Iraq where the missiles are set up on the Iraq-Syrian border to Tel Aviv is 632 kilometers, uh, which is a little over 300 miles. That ain't very far, folks. 300 miles. Hell, Florida's longer than that, Bill. I think Florida's, what, five, 600 miles long from Key West all the way to the tip? I don't know. It's a pretty long state. Are you awake? Oh, my God, I'm waiting for you to jump in here and help me out. Here's the, here's the thing, Doc. 
if I feel like you're getting going in the wrong direction, I'll let you know you're doing fine. <laughs> I only interrupt you when you're wrong, and so far it's been uh, almost two years, and I haven't done it yet. Oh, my God, isn't he wonderful, folks? <laughs> Give that man a raise. <laughs> I'm going to record that. All right, and send it to our station manager, Barbara. I wonder if she still listens. Barbara, are you out there listening to the show today? I guess not. Oh, well, what are you going to do? So we have this situation in the Middle East, and the Venezuelan situation, too, that seemed to kind of sputter out. But I did see that the two uh, opposition sides uh, are in talks, I believe, in Norway. They're meeting, um, go from the from the equator all the way up to the frozen tundra to meet. I don't know. It's something weird about that. But nevertheless, and, and, and Bolton was saying, there's going to be a regime change, and we're going to send in troops and all of that. And, of course, nothing materialized. And I think that uh, the, the president and Bolton obviously have a, a little bit of a disagreement about how to approach this. And, of course, the big uprising that the opposition leader in Venezuela was supposed to lead was him and a few of his honchos. And the military did not join him. They stayed with Maduro and, and the thugs. But, you know, whoever's got the most cash wins. And are we willing to finance uh, to are we willing to buy the Venezuelan army onto our side? I don't think that that is uh, something that the president would want to get into, and uh, it would certainly be very unpopular uh, with the electorate at this point. Uh, we've got an election coming up in a year and a half, and so he's got to be careful about what he says and does and who he supports and the ways in which he supports them. And I, I don't blame him for that. I think it's important that we are careful that we are cautious in our dealings in foreign policy at this point in time and try to hang on to our our lead as conservatives and Republicans and I, I don't want to see that upset. So I'm going to go with the president at this point on this one. Uh, that doesn't mean that I agree with him 100%. And as you guys know, I'm not a pacifist. I am a reluctant warrior. Well, I like to think of myself as a warrior. I'm probably more of just an old man sitting here shooting the breeze and uh, acting like I know something important. But uh, I'm having fun anyway. So we've got a lot of uh, threats going on in this area. And the other problem is the unmanned... Uh, Drones that are increasingly available to a number of countries around the world, including the Iranians. And we're going to talk about that after the break because, gosh, Bill, this morning I woke up and I thought there was a, a drone looking at me through my bedroom window. Now, it turned out it was just a tree branch, but uh, it got me thinking about the drones. And <laughs> is that. <laughs> <laughs> turned out it was a tree branch. It was a tree branch, and I must have been dreaming about drones. Um, is, that, is that wrong to dream about drones? I don't know. What are you taking to help you sleep? Uh, drone medicine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, we'll talk about drones after the break, but I think that we 
we need to make sure that our allies are with us on this uh, in the Middle East because it is vitally important that we do not enter this alone. Uh, the, the problem being is that if you have the Europeans saying, yeah, we go along with the Americans, even though they're crazy and we don't, we don't really trust them a whole lot, but they, they do come and bail us out every 50 years or so when Russia or Germany or somebody's trying to take us over. So we'll back them up on this. If we don't have that support, then the Russians and the Chinese will start uh, beating the drums saying, you guys are bullies and you're picking on Iran and they're our friend and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Now, the Pentagon is working with the Defense Intelligence Agency to declassify and release some of the satellite videos and some of the intelligence uh, pictures that they have captured of the Iranian uh short-range missiles that have been deployed on ships as well, that the Iranians are, are trying to get a surface-based uh, 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 um, offensive weaponry going. And we have evidence of that, but there is a debate in the, uh, in the intelligence and in the military community as to how much we should show. Obviously, we don't want to give our hand away as to how we obtain these, these photos because some of this is done from the inside. You know, we have special ops that are roaming around Iran and Iraq and countries all over the world uh, spying, looking for uh, evidence of uh, potential threats to us and to our allies. And, and that's a good thing. We have to do that. We have to maintain a presence throughout the world. And I've talked with guys in, in special ops and I've talked with one guy, and he said that he went into Iraq. I, I don't know if it was before the the '91 war or the uh, the war in the 2000s, but he said they went in before everything. And I said, "What'd you do?" He said, "We dug a hole in the sand. There were two other guys with him, and they they made a little. Uh, they got a piece of plywood or something, and they made a little underground hut for themselves, and they just watched uh, military vehicles coming by, and and um, looked at the launching of planes and different things that the Iraqi army was doing. And they just gathered intelligence. And I said, did you, did anybody see? He said, one little, one little kid saw us and came up to us and we bought him off with candy bars. So I don't know if that's true or not. It sounds like a great story. Now I know the guy was in special ops. So, you know, we are, we are in the area. And we are looking not only from the sky, not only from satellites, but we have people on the ground. And we also have intelligence agents within the Iranian government that are spying for us. And we, we can't reveal uh, some of these pictures and some of this information and how we get it, or we're going to blow their cover. And we don't want that. These are people that are working with and for us, and we have to protect our protect our own. So... Uh, now, our new acting defense secretary, Patrick Shanahan, who seems like a really level-headed guy, uh, has been looking at this, and he believes that there is a threat stream from Iran that the U.S. detected uh, in the week since General Kenneth McKenzie, head of the U.S. Central Command, uh, alerted the uh, secretary of defense, Patrick Shanahan, of the problem that he saw arising and that the um, Iranians, through their proxies and directly with their own people, were setting up missiles in western Iraq 
that there were drones that were flying over spotting targets. And so these drones have the ability to attack. You can put a, a weapon on a drone if you got a big enough drone. And we know that the drone industry has, uh, has evolved rapidly. We know that the Chinese have very sophisticated drones and have given those to the North Koreans and to the Iranians. And we, you know, the Russians have drones. We have drones. The Israelis have drones. In fact, the Israelis were one of the first people to use the drones. That's my half of my family. We're pretty smart people, you know. So the, for now, the Pentagon has hastened deployment of the aircraft carrier and Patriot anti-missile batteries to the region. The Patriot anti-missile batteries are, are there to bring down uh, offensive missiles that are fired at uh, land targets, uh, ships, um, planes. And so we've got those in the area. And we also had the B-52s with the nuclear bombs. I mean, I don't know if they had nuclear bombs on them, but of course we said they did, and we sent those flying over, and we've got the F-35A stealth fighters conducting counter-air patrols in the region. The F-35A is the uh, is the latest generation, along with the F-22 of the fighter jets that we have developed. Now, the F-35 is the one that we have sold to our allies around the world, and they are also involved in production. So what we do is we, we sell them parts and they have to put it together and they have to supply some of their own parts and every country gets a different thing to manufacture. So everybody's involved and then they sell that part to other countries. So if, if we're selling F-35s to Japan and South Korea and South Korea is making part Z and Japan part Y, then they sell those parts to each other. Uh, and of course that enhances trade. And then they have to put them together, which gives them a, a native industry as well. Uh, that is to assemble the airplanes. And then they also know how to disassemble and how to maintain and take care of them. So these F-35s are the latest. They're not as sophisticated, quite as sophisticated as the F-22s. And we're holding those back. We don't want any of those to fall into the hands of the Iranians who will quickly give it to the Russians and that will give the Russians and the Chinese a leg up, so to speak, because they'll then have some technology that we don't have or that we have rather that they don't have. Now, Nancy Pelosi has warned the administration about taking military action against the uh, Iranians without authorization from Congress. And she said, the responsibility in the Constitution is for Congress to declare war. So I hope that the president's advisors recognize that they have no authorization to go forward in any way. Well, that's not completely true. Uh, the president has to come to Congress after something has started and see if it's okay. And Congress can say, well, we're not going to fund this because we disagree with you after you present all the material to them. Uh, George Bush went the Bush two went the uh, and Bush one they both went the the uh, traditional way and they went to Congress beforehand and got everybody involved and uh, you know what if you have to stop and get permission every time you take a shot in the field and I was talking with a guy who was uh, a sniper 
in the Canadian Army. And of course, he was deployed with with the American forces at different points in time. And he said, it's gotten ridiculous where you have to call back to uh, the Central Command and they've got a, a lawyer. They're called JAGs, uh, J-A-G. Uh, they are the legal branch of the military and uh, they are the ones who say, yeah, it's okay to take a shot because you have been shot at or there is a credible threat. And the reason is, is that if you take a shot without there being some offense against you, then you could be held liable for war crimes. Oh, for God's sakes, this is war. And in war, all's fair, so to speak. That doesn't mean that we uh, mistreat prisoners or we kill civilians indiscriminately, but there's going to be collateral damage. And if you see a guy with a gun and he's got it pointed at you, or you see a guy who's working on a bomb, you know, what are you going to do? Well, you got to call back and get permission to shoot at him. Believe it or not, you have to get permission to fire if you're a sniper or if you're uh, a combat um, platoon or division, you have to get permission from headquarters to proceed. It's, uh, it's gotten really crazy. And in World War II, uh, our people were, were more free to move, although there was certainly some restrictions placed on, on the military. And, and this uh, did irk some of the commanders like George Patton, who said, well, if you just let me go, I'll encircle the Germans, and that'll be the end of the war. It'll be over, and um, the the brass in London said no. Eisenhower said no. You have to stand down, and so they were halted, and the Germans escaped out of France back into Germany, and and were able to mount another big offensive called the Battle of the Bulge, and the winter of '44 around Christmas. So there are uh, rules of engagement. And they've gotten stricter over time. And uh, the Congress is saying, well, we're ultimately in control of that. Well, you're ultimately in control of financing the war and declaring war. But guess who's the head of the military? And uh, I love it what uh, Andrew Jackson said when the Supreme Court ruled against him. I think it was over his uh, dismantling the the federal banking system, which, of course, threw us into a big recession in the 1830s and 40s. But uh, Congress was not in session at that time, and he just ended the bank charter. It was up for renewal, and he just didn't renew it without Congress's input, and they didn't like that. They went to court. The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. And he said, well, does the Supreme Court have an army? I do. So the president has a lot of power, and how he uses that, of course, is is the uh, is the real litmus test of what kind of man uh, he is and how he will approach things militarily and diplomatically. With that, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be back in a few minutes, and we'll talk a little bit about the drone that showed up at my bedroom window this morning. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Officials say two people have died after what was likely a tornado destroyed a motel and swept through a nearby mobile home park in the Oklahoma City area last night. Search and rescue efforts continue at this hour. 
The National Weather Service says the suspected twister hit El Reno Saturday as a powerful storm system rolled through the state. The American Budget Value Inn was destroyed. Trailers at the Skyview Estates Mobile Home Park adjacent were also damaged. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe says golfing with President Trump today provided the two men with time to talk over their shared private views, ostensibly on matters beyond just golf. Abe is entertaining the president in Japan ahead of challenging trade talks. And pivotal elections for the European Union Parliament reached their climax today as the last 21 EU member nations go to the polls. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh, where have you been? If you snore, the first time you use mute can be quite an experience. (laughs) I can breathe. I can breathe. Snoring can happen when your nose is blocked, forcing you to breathe through your mouth. Mute is a comfortable nasal breathing device designed to increase airflow through the nose by gently opening the airways. Thanks to Mute, you get all the air you need through your nose and not your mouth, which means less snoring and more chance of sleep. Oh, that's the best night I've had in years. In trials, 75% of couples reported a reduction in snoring when using Mute. Available at Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid and other fine stores. To find your local store or for more information, go to MuteSnoring.com. Mute. Breathe more, snore less, sleep better. Captain Matt here for Freedom Boat Club, where the numbers tell the story. With one of the largest fleets of any Freedom Boat Club in the country, you have access to over 400 boats with six different types of watercraft, including center consoles, deck boats, and skiffs. Now with 20 locations across Tampa Bay, with two more coming to the villages soon. The numbers are always in your favor at FreedomBoatClubTampaBay.com. That's FreedomBoatClubTampaBay.com or call 855-FREEDOM. That's 855-FREEDOM. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. Excessive dry weather today into tomorrow will result in a high fire threat for today. Mostly sunny skies and hot with a high of 96. Mainly clear skies tonight, the low 76. It'll be hot tomorrow with sunshine and a high of 94. Mainly clear tomorrow night, the low 76. Mostly sunny skies Tuesday and hot with a high of 93. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Drew Shannon for AM860, The Answer.
bit of Gary Allen. He's watching airplanes out at the airport, wondering which one his girlfriend took off on and why she left him. So we're back. We've been talking about the situation in the Middle East with Iran, and uh, we were morphing into talking about the uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, better known as drones, uh, UAVs is what the military calls them, and we know them for short as drones. <coughs> These are powered uh, vehicles. Uh, we've all seen the ones with the four propellers that face upward and uh, that go straight up and can be manipulated by tilting the propellers a little bit this way and that way. And you can buy these. I think they're as cheap as 100 bucks now, and you can get a little remote control and, you know, kind of like a little toy car fly it around the neighborhood, hit your, hit your neighbor in the head that you don't like. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, little little stuff like that. Have some fun with it. But these can be very sophisticated, and uh, the the unmanned drones that look like airplanes can carry uh, cameras, it can carry uh, high-tech radar, it can carry weaponry, uh, and we've used these to take out uh, Taliban and Al-Qaeda people uh, from distance from a guy sitting in a control booth and in Saudi Arabia flying it into the deserts of Iraq or Iran, and also in Pakistan and and uh, in the Arabian Peninsula. So these are pretty sophisticated uh, pieces of equipment. You can have someone sit at a, at a at a desk with a TV monitor with a with a mo with a computer monitor and controls, and uh, with the camera on the plane, he can fly right down the throat of whoever he wants. These can be launched by catapults. Uh, they can be launched by uh, short runways because they're short takeoff planes. Uh, they're, they're, their wingspan is large relative to their body size, so they get a lot of lift in a hurry. They can be uh, uh, deployed straight up with the upward pointing rotor blades. And you might think this is a new uh, phenomenon. This is not. Unmanned aerial vehicles have been used uh, since around 1850. I did not know this. They were, of course, hot air balloons, and they were used uh, passively. They didn't have any uh, any ability to be steered or guided. They they counted on the on the wind to carry them where they wanted the the balloons to go, and they were used as offensive weapons with bombs, and they were not very effective because the wind tends to change, and whoops, sometimes those bombs will come back and drop on you. So that didn't go over too well. Now, during the Civil War, we had uh, hot air balloons. Uh, these were manned, uh, but as the 19th century went on, there were attempts to make unmanned uh, steerable vehicles that were airborne. And so this was the birth of the drones, so to speak. Now, this picked up more steam in the last half of the 20th century because of the uh, technology that increased. But we uh, have seen this even in World War II. The, the Germans used uh, the V-2 bomb, the V-1 bombs, which were unmanned. One was a missile and the other was, was just a small... Uh, plane that uh, had a set 
time for detonation and a bomb on it, and they would fly that over towards London, and, and it would run out of gas and fall down, and, and it would uh, blow up. And these were drones. They were, they were not um, directed by uh, a human being. They were just set on one course, and once they got up, they were on their own, but basically they were drones. So this is, this is not a new phenomenon. Now, the de Havilland Queen Bee was a drone that uh, the, the British developed in 1941. And, and, of course, the United States and Great Britain tend not to talk about some of their developments, even from 50 to 100 years ago. We'd rather let the enemy think that we're um, not that sophisticated, so to speak. But these... Uh, vehicles have been in production and development uh, since the, the beginning of the Civil War, in the United States anyway. And the reconnaissance cameras were first used and tested by Israeli intelligence on drones, and these brought photos back from across the Suez Canal in the 1967-70 War of Attrition, and this was the first time the tactical drones uh, which could be launched and landed on short runways, were used. Uh, the uh, development and testing of this uh, quickly morphed into being used in battle as offensive weapons as well. So the Israelis have been very integral in developing this technology, and they also used these uh, drones as decoys to, to uh, kind of bait the enemy into wasting expensive anti-aircraft missiles and anti-aircraft fire at their drones. So they would fly inexpensive drones over Syria and the Egyptian lines, and the Egyptians and Syrians would fire at them with their anti-aircraft missiles, which, of course, cost money. They had to buy them or develop them, and usually they bought them from the, uh, at that time, from the Russians. And so the Israelis were pretty shrewd in using their drones as a, a decoy weapon. Now, we use these in Southeast Asia, and we confirmed this uh, in 1973, but we've been using drones since the beginning of the Vietnam War. And so it was uh, uh, not a new development, but it's certainly something that came into our consciousness just in the past 10 to 20 years because of the rapid spread and deployment of, of the drones, the use of drones, especially in the Gulf War, and the use of, of drones by the neighborhoods and the kids. Now, I haven't seen a whole lot of drones in our neighborhood, but again, we're in a, a gated community with a bunch of older people, so I'm, I'm not sure that there are a lot of kids here, but they're, they're fairly young at this point. I, Bill, do you see drones in your neighborhood? Is this something that is, is coming into the common man's... Uh, Arena, I guess he's taking a break. So at any rate, I have not seen uh, drones uh, in any appreciable number. Um, I've seen a few, but not in my neighborhood. The application of this is obviously uh, beneficial to humanity. It can be used in agriculture. It can be used in housing, roofing, uh, surveying. It can be used in a number of things. And for, for my money, the most, uh, the most beneficial is to inspect the roof of, of a house, especially a house like mine that is built fairly high, and it's tough to see 
some of the top tiles on the roof that have been dislodged by the storm. So uh, with a small drone and a camera on it, you can send it up there and you can inspect the roof. So the drones have come into their own and they are now being used by a number of countries, including North Korea. Surprisingly, one of the drones uh, that was captured by the South Koreans flying over South Korea to gather intelligence was very sophisticated, very sophisticated. Uh, the technology for this undoubtedly is coming from China and is also uh, being enhanced by uh, smaller countries like North Korea and Tehran. Iran. So we're putting some fairly sophisticated uh, devices into the hands of rogue nations. The Israelis have the the Mastiff, which first flew in 1975 and has been uh, undergoing refinement over the decades. So what can you use these things for in, in, in military? You can use them as targets and decoys for reconnaissance to gather uh, data and information and intelligence. You can use them in combat. Uh, they have attack capabilities for high-risk missions. Uh, if you don't want to send your own people in, uh, logistics, uh, delivering cargo. And Amazon has been talking about this for several years. Uh, they're still trying to work out I think some of the uh, problems that they're having with the government and the Federal Aviation Administration, but they did make a delivery uh, within the past several months, their first, their first official delivery with one of their drones, and it's pretty cool the way these things work. You take uh, a pad that has uh, a GPS signal coming out of it, sort of like a homing device, and you put that pad out on your lawn, and the little drone picks up on that signal and flies and comes down and drops your package right on your on your pad in your yard and then it takes off again and it's gone and then you walk out and you get your your package and it's got little uh, like Bombay doors underneath the bottom of the drone that open up and drop the package pretty cool pretty cool so you get a big enough drone you can deliver quite a lot of cargo um, I saw years ago out in uh, in Las Vegas, there was a ton of construction going on, and I, I saw this really cool helicopter that was basically just a cockpit, huge wingspan, huge motor, and it was lifting steel I-beams and moving them around to construction sites. Now, the next step will be to make it an unmanned vehicle, and then you can, without risking the life of the pilot, you can move uh, tremendously large uh, pieces of material. You could even lift up a tank and carry it into battle without risking any, uh, any pilot's lives to drop this off. And uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating to see something like that and to realize the potential for this. And, and in the civil and commercial uh, aviation, uh, that is also going to be a big deal, if not already. Agriculture, aerial photography, data collection, all of this is important. The problem that arises when you have uh, a drone that is capable of gathering intelligence, and one of the things that our government has warned us about 
are these drones that are made uh, by one of the uh, one of the Chinese companies. Let me tell you which one it is. According to this is from CNN. Uh, the biggest drone manufacturer in the world is DJI, DJI which is based in Shenzhen, China. And uh, they're worried about the technology, our government, because the Chinese government has a big stake in this. They've put money into this. And so they are saying be cautious when purchasing drone technology from Chinese manufacturers as they contain components that can, comprom that can compromise your data and share your information on a server access beyond the company itself. So if you're a company and you've got some secret developments that you don't want any other competitors to know about, be careful using these drones to move equipment around your plant, your factory, your job sites, because it can also pick up information about what you're doing and what you're developing. How does it do it? Well, you know, uh, most of us now are using uh, the Internet, and the Internet is, uh, uh, in, in large part, radio wave-based and microwave-based. And so information can be picked up by any device that has the ability to intercept and decipher, decode those radio waves and those uh, microwaves that are coming out. So you pick up your phone and you call, hey, it ain't connected to nothing. It's putting out a radio signal, and that goes to a tower nearby, and the tower processes that through computers and shoots it out to uh, wherever else it needs to go. And uh, it's a, a tremendously sophisticated system, uh, but it's not that hard to break. So the uh, Chinese, obviously, we've developed the same technology, and that's how we know they have it because – if we have it, they've probably stolen it from us, and that's how they have it now. So they can build this, and they can also put in uh, malware, and they can put in viruses, so they could shut down your system with these drones that you buy from them, and you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know that anything was in there, and the malware could go in there, and it could tell your computer to copy all information from your computer or your uh, computer-based system back to another server that would then be shunted over to whatever intelligence base the Chinese may have. And all of this can be done relatively easily once you get these drones deployed. Now, the 5G networking technology from Chinese vendors Huawei, Huawei, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, has also been a problem, and the U.S. officials have argued that Huawei's networking gear poses a similar spying threat because the company itself is under the jurisdiction of the Chinese government. And so Trump and his people have been yelling about this and have been cautioning people not to do business with Huawei, and I think they've even issued arrest warrants for some of the uh, some of the. Uh, financial and uh, operating officers of these companies because of their uh, seemingly involvement in developing technology that is really spy technology. So this is a problem. And uh, so if you do get a drone, and you're not going to get one that sophisticated for your backyard, uh, just keep an eye on it and put it on a leash. Don't let, don't let it get too far. Uh, it might roam around and pick up evidence on the neighbors, you know. 
spy on, <laughs> you know, do some window peeping or something. So you got to keep an eye on your drone, your pet drone, so to speak. How to Take Care of Your Pet Drone. That's a new movie that's coming out by Dr. Bill, you know, How to Care for Your Dragon. Now we're How to Care for Your Drone. Well, we're at the end of the show. Had a great time today. Love you guys. And I will see you next week. Bill, thank you for being there, even though you never say anything. I love you guys. I'm out of here. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.